0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at We Are Libertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at We Libertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle. This is another edition of our special series called The Path to Libertarianism. And our goal with these is basically to talk to people that you may have heard of, uh, prominent libertarians, talk about their development as libertarians so you can hear your story and theirs. Uh, I'm very excited today to be talking to Joe Bishop Henchman, who is a chair for the National Libertarian Committees. Uh, well, you're running for chair. and. I I don't know why. Please tell me why.
1: Why would you do this to yourself? Well, uh, there's a lot of work we've got to do. Uh, I want to see us actually be a viable third party electing people. Uh, I'm pretty impatient seeing all the bad public policy being made all over the country and wish we had more libertarians at the legislative negotiating table. So that's what I want to see happen. Well, great. Well,
0: we're, we're glad you're running. And many of the people here at We Are Libertarians are big fans, including myself, and Thank wish you. you all the best. If you want to find out more about his run, you can go to winwithjoe.org. But let's start with your development, and we'll talk a little bit more about your race for chair and all that towards the end. Sure. Uh, we don't want to get the cart before the horse, but let's talk about little Joe Bishop Henchman. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where? What was your family like? Did you come from a political family? What what p- political persuasions were you kind of stewing in as a kid? And when did you find an interest in this? Start start with your origin story, I guess.
1: Sure. Well, I'm born and raised in San Diego County, California, and miss the weather and the beach every single day since I moved to Washington, D.C. My <laughs> aunt and uncle are from there, and it's beautiful there. Oh, where in San Diego? Uh, Poway. Oh, yeah. Uh, I grew up Carlsbad Oceanside Vista, uh, uh, kind of on the other uh, other side of uh, the hills. Um, And uh, family wasn't very political. Uh, I changed that, actually. (laughs) But uh, uh, I guess my real first memory of a political instinct was um, when I was really young, uh, the neighbors across the street had to move. And they didn't want to move but they had to move. And so it's this elderly African-American couple, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. They, um, you know, just wonderful. They always had the best Halloween candy. They always were everybody's babysitters when anybody needed one. Um, And then, and then they had to leave their house and move. And what was happening was uh, they were putting a new highway through nearby and they needed the land for an on-ramp uh, to, to kind of grade down into the on-ramp. And so they took their house and told them they had to move. And, you know, I didn't really understand why they had to move. Um, and, you know, we, we had to go through them saying their sad goodbyes and moving. And, and it, you know, it left the neighborhood worse for it. In the end, they ended up rerouting the highway. So they never actually did anything with the house that they took. So it's, and I just looked on Google Earth. It's still an empty lot to this day. Um, and it, I guess at that young age, I first started realizing maybe the people in power don't really know what they're doing. Um, so kind of a proto libertarian instinct, I think. And yeah. at what age were you? I don't even remember. It was, I was, un, I was less than 10. Um, yeah. But um, the, we were at the San Diego County Fair in '92, so I would have been 11 at that point. And Libertarian Party had a booth at, at the fair. Picked up some literature, uh, and you know, it kind of made sense to me. And uh, even even that young. And then in '96, uh, Harry Brown and Joe Jorgensen were the national ticket, and I organized a little pamphlet handing out chapter of Youth for Brown Jorgensen '96. Were you? The um, one? Were you like? The- <laughs> we, we had two others, so uh, uh, maybe the largest chapter in the country. I don't know. But, uh, and uh, you know, printed up our own little uh, own little pamphlets and handed them out, and uh, and then uh, you know, we were often and, off and running. Um, the in in when I was a teenager, uh, we uh, San Diego passed a curfew law in order to tell teenagers they had to stay inside after dark. Um, based on this misguided, you know, teenagers cause youth, cause cause crimes and all that. Um, So we organized a bunch of protests against it, Uh, an organization called Libertarian Rock. Um, So it was kind of a combination of a whole bunch of different groups. But, uh, you know, we did the messaging and everything. And MTV actually came out and and filmed us protesting against the curfew. so that was my first media appearance. Uh, I, I would have been 16 at the time. You um, remember show?
0: because I bet you that my high school was featured on the same show you were featured on. It's Is the it- show it
1: was called a uh, fight for the right. Um, oh. it, and, uh, somebody found an archival copy, but then now it's been misplaced again. And I've been Can trying
0: to find it. You're it. running for office. That's oh a- Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> I mean, Joe. Yeah, yeah. But we haven't been able to find it, but you know, I, I, it happened. And, um, uh, you know we actually were able to get a first amendment carve out put into the law so oh. to this day in san diego it's it's still against the law if you're under a certain age to be out after 10 p.m. but if you wear a sticker that says repeal the curfew while you're out you're exercising your First Amendment rights. You come under that exception. You're able to be out uh, after dark.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. That's really cool. So let's go back to Harry Brown uh, yeah. because he's kind of a forgotten. He he's been resurrected a little bit in the last uh, month or so, just because of Jacob Hornberger and his past with Brown and sure. and Hornberger's run and and treatment of Amash. But Harry Brown, in I've been around the movement for about 15 years. And there's certain names that sort of, everybody, it starts with those people. It starts with Harry mm-hmm. Brown for the older people, the older Gen X or Boomers. And then it goes to Ron Paul. Now it's Gary Johnson. Soon it'll be, you know, presumably a Justin Amash or a Thomas mm-hmm. Matthew. Um But Harry Brown's memory is kind of fading a little bit. He passed away in the early 2000s. Can you talk a little bit about Harry Brown? What attracted you to him? I know you were younger,
1: but like, what are yeah. some of your memories of Mr. Brown? Well, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I think I only met him twice in my life once when he kind of his campaign swung through San Diego in 1996, and then once. Um, In the Bay Area, when I was in college, uh, we, the Cal Libertarians, which I was either vice president or president of at the time, we all went over to go to his fundraiser in 2000. So those are the only times I ever met him. But um, his book, he wrote a lot of books, but his book, Why Government Doesn't Work, which was his 96 campaign book. It's on my shelf. Oh, yeah. Um, it, It really just spoke to me. And, you know, everybody, every Libertarian's got some favorite books, and they're all kind of different ones. Um, you know, objectivists really like the kind of uh, philosophical or fictional uh, scope of Ayn Rand. And uh, obviously a lot of people like Mises and Rothbard. Um, I I guess I'm a charts and graphs and, you know, timelines and history kind of guy. And that's really kind of how Why Government Doesn't Work is set up. It's, It's kind of a classic public policy brief of outlining the problem, explaining why the problem is the problem and then laying out solutions. And he does that for, I think it's 10 or 12 different issues. And those are the chapters of the book. And, uh, you know, I the, it was persuasive enough for me that there were a few areas at the time when I first read it where I wasn't fully on board and it completely turned me around on some of those issues. And I mean, to this day, I still hand out to, to kind of new libertarians, I still hand out the book. Um, because that, that's, it, it's what kind of pulled me in. So, um, when like governor Lincoln Chafee, uh, joined the party last summer and, uh, came to Washington DC, I gave him a copy of, of why government doesn't work by Harry Brown. And I said, this, I really like this. I hope you really like it too. Um, and, uh, you know, he just had a way to synthesize everything. And, you know, I read something about before he died, he was working on a book about war mm. and, uh, the, you know, what Eisenhower called the, uh, the military industrial complex, and, and it's kind of pushed to, uh, to keep us engaged everywhere. And, um, according to his widow, um, Harry Brown had read, you know, hundreds of books, made notes all over the place, was trying to work with the structure of it. Um, so, I mean, he just didn't like sit down at a computer and, and, and dash stuff off. I mean, everything he wrote was thoroughly sourced, thoroughly referenced, absolutely factual, and, uh, you know, that just really spoke to me.
0: Yeah. He wrote several different types of books. One's about one about investing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one that I have relied on a lot along with Jeffrey Myron's book and Ron Paul's book along the same vein. Uh, Liberty A to Z, I think is what Harry Brown's book is called. Ron Paul's was Liberty defined. There are some of these, and, and the thrust of these books are basically here's, it's in a little mini explainer on that particular issue. Mm-hmm. You, know, so you flip to the social security section and then he's got a bunch of talking points. And Liberty A to Z has been really helpful for me over the last decade. And what's funny about Harry Brown's Why Government Doesn't Work because I went back and I looked at it about a year ago, just kind of looking through it. It really, you don't think about, I, I'm 36. I don't know if you want to share your age. 39. 39. So we're about the same age, but you know, being politically interested in the 90s and being awake and aware of kind of what was going on, you go back through Harry Brown's book or the Clinton 92 campaign book and you just see how different politics was Yeah, and how those books, those campaign books, those debates, everything was so much more policy focused, lots of conversations about things like social security and how to reform it. And politics just seems so different now to the point that Harry Brown's book almost doesn't connect because it's so wonky compared to what we talk about now which is character and people and it's 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 almost a um the talk radio slash reality TVization of politics has kind of drifted us from those policy points
1: yeah maybe um you know i i I sometimes joke every president seems worse than the one before it and it kind of doesn't seem possible how we can continue along that, uh, along that train of things. I think there's a lot of demand out there for solutions. Um, you know, I don't think Congress's approval rating has ever been lower than it is now. Not, I mean, and it's never really been that high, but it seems to be going ever further downwards. And, you know, I'm in DC, so I interact, I'm based in Washington, DC, so I interact with a lot of the, uh, Uh, the different players and, and, you know, the people engage in this ecosystem here. And uh, I mean, it's just miserable being a member of Congress. Now you spend all your time fundraising, you have no ability to introduce anything. Um, Leadership decides everything. Uh, So you end up with people who want the job for the perks of it, or want the job to climb to something higher. Um, Or, you know, people who do it out of some sense of duty and they get burned out or drummed out or, or, or whatnot. Um, and I just don't think that's sustainable. I agree with you. That's kind of what our political so- ecosystem is pushing towards. And somehow the Democratic and Republican primary processes are now designed to produce the worst possible candidates for both of those parties. Uh, and you see a lot of frustration about that by, in people in those parties. Um, so I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, being able to talk about how we would go in a different direction has an open audience. And, you know, I, I, I reread through... Um, uh, why government doesn't work again last year the same and uh, his ability to kind of prophesize what would happen is kind of startling so like on the chapter on health care uh, you know at the time we were debating like prescription drugs and uh, covering children and all of that in the 90s um, but he kind of laid out the the history and the trend of things in the expansion of government involvement in healthcare. And at the time he said half of every dollar spent on healthcare is controlled by government and that's distorting the market and kind of here's what will happen next. And then after that, this will happen. And then after that, this will happen. And he didn't put dates to it. Uh, Cause he, you know, he wasn't trying to be Nostradamus or anything, but uh, everything he laid out in that sequence of events has come to pass. And um, I mean, there's more things along the sequence of events. And the last one is basically the, you know, the health enforcement agency finds a French fry in your glove compartment and and finds you or arrests you for uh, imposing excessive costs on the state uh, for the healthcare uh, system. So, uh, you know, at the time, I thought that was ridiculous. They're never going to, you know, launch some war on fatty foods or something. But, uh, (laughs) you know, a lot of states have already started doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, including Michael Bloomberg. Um,
0: So how you're running to be at the top of the food chain. I know Nick Starwark calls himself the least important libertarian leader, something along those lines. Right. Um, but how does the libertarian party or libertarian movement at large stand out? Like I view the future of the libertarian party as the voice of the small business owner, the voice of the middle class, as you know, Republicans start to chase after the working poor and the Democrats start to chase after the uber rich and a weird confluence of events. You know, the people in the middle, the sane people, the people who are just kind of scratching their heads, really 80% of this country going, I I don't know what any of this is. I'm not interested. I'm just looking for yep. solutions. How do we craft a path forward as, as a movement to really
1: start to give normies, regular people, solutions? Well, a lot of people now are feeling politically homeless. Um, registrations for independent... Uh, have never been higher. Um, A lot of people aren't voting, uh, even though they care a lot about the system. Um, And, you know, you just... Seeing the lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden on the Democratic side and seeing the alarmism from a lot of, you know, a lot of people uh, on the Republican side about um, their choice as well, I think there is a big opportunity for us. Um, A lot of it is... uh, just kind of usual campaign tactics of figuring out our messaging. Um, so just as an example, I ran for attorney general in DC in 2018. That was to keep our ballot access here, which we were able to do. In um, coming up with the messaging for the campaign, uh, I wanted to come up with three issues then and, and uh, things I called 80% issues, stuff 80% of the electorate would agree with but were not being met by the incumbent in the race or really by any other, anyone else running for office. And uh, in D.C., those were, uh, let's get barriers out of the way for the construction of new housing. Let's see, Attorney General can do. He's got uh, a Deputy Attorney General that can intervene in, in those cases where somebody's uh, trying to block construction or prevent anything. I got a bunch of stories on that. Um, <clears throat> let's get uh, obstacles out of the way of, of expanding school choice. And then let's actually hold the metro system here, the leaders of it, accountable for their lack of safety and their disregard for people dying on it and all of that, um, which the, the attorney general here has, he, he's eager to use those powers against every private business, but is totally hands-off when it comes to the metro system, which has been literally killing people. Um, and, you know, that that message resonated with people. Um because and you know it's not anti-libertarian. It's not you know end the Fed or or pull the troops out because the DC attorney general really doesn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff. Um, but it still carried libertarian principles forward, and um, and honestly, a, a, a message that really worked with a lot of people uh, related to all of that was: wouldn't it be nice if we had a libertarian at the table raising these issues? And even even died in the wool Democrats. Don't want a hundred percent control of this city because um, they're worried about what what would happen in that situation. They want other voices at the table, and so they were uh, they were they were open and willing. And, and We got quite a few votes on it. We got more votes than Donald Trump got for president in twenty sixteen, um, which uh, you know maybe isn't a high bar in the District of Columbia, but it's uh, an important bar that we had to meet uh, beat. And I'm glad we were able to do it. Uh, So what the Libertarian Party can do on all of this is help with this training and help with this framing and helping candidates and affiliates decide the messaging that works for their communities. Because the messaging that works for the Attorney General's race in the District of Columbia isn't going to be the messaging that works for other races in other parts of the country. Uh, But if we can start communicating that Libertarians are about solutions, Libertarians are about principles, Libertarians are about making sure that good policy decisions are made, And that um, you know we always have freedom and liberty and uh, and individual choice at the forefront. I think we can make a lot of headway. So one of the
0: big changes in the movement since I've been a part of it in in 2007, you know, when I when I joined, there were it goes back to sort of that reality TV that Trump, like Trump, has just kind of in a lot of ways torn the fabric of not just the country but also the. The movement and how libertarians talk to each other mm-hmm. uh, which there were always disagreements between you know you've got the the Mises versus Cato type nonsense you know instead of everybody working together we got to fight something that happened 40 years ago right um, but there seems to be a new layer with social media of uh, I don't know it's a it's a vocal 20 30 percent of uh, of online people that just kind of scratch at anybody who wants to poke their head up and talk about something other than what that person wants them to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the infighting discussion, which I tend to think is a little overinflated. It, it's it gets us all emotional, but it's not necessarily important, but it does distract us a lot. So like, how do you deal with wanting to be a solutions based party, but then you've got a very vocal group of people who don't want that to take place. They want to drown out the conversation to move things their way like how, how do you f- plan to navigate that if you become chair because it seems to me to be one of the bigger problems facing us is just the tenor of social media within the movement
1: uh the short answer is to be set a good example and hope that others follow and incentivize people to follow and i can give some examples on it so you know i've been i moved to dc in 2004 uh, but worked in the policy space, worked in transportation policy, worked at the DC attorney general's office for a bit, and then uh, uh, in tax policy and helped build organizations, been board chairs and and so forth uh, since then. And, um, you yeah, know, went to law school somewhere in that anyways. But anyways, uh, you know, so I've been active in the libertarian movement here in DC for quite some time and interacting with a lot of people. And uh, there's a, obviously a, a gap, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot more libertarians than libertarian party members. Um, you know, it's kind of orders of magnitude more. And uh, so I, I've always been kind of the weird one that's, you know, involved in the DC libertarian scene while also being a member of the party. I, I, I um, there's not a lot of us uh, there, at least there weren't used to be a lot. They didn't used to be a lot of us um, in part, because I think the, the libertarian party has a reputation of, uh, kind of not succeeding, uh, of being, you know, the circular firing squad that, that doesn't want to do anything. And, uh, you know, I, I think 2016 belied that. I think 2016, a ticket was nominated to try, try and to try to get in front of Americans and, and try to, uh, offer a real choice for, uh, for America on, on who to vote for, for president. And, uh, So that's when I started to get additionally involved in the national party. And uh, in 2018, I decided to run for the national committee. National committee consists of 17 members, um, four officers, eight regional reps, and then five at-large members. So I ran for the at-large seat, one of the five at-large seats. And, uh, And, you know. All sorts of people told me, you know, why are you bothering? It's you're not going to get anything done. It's hopeless. It's it's just, just don't do it. Um, but you know, I wanted to try, and and honestly, my campaign messaging in running for that race was, you know, I, I want to run to be a voice for uh, solutions. I want to be a voice for uh, figuring out problems and solving them. Um, hiring good staff, making sure they're they're empowered, uh, setting goals um, testing and trying things and reinforcing success. And I ended up coming up in second in the race, uh, out of the five and was elected. So even among libertarian delegates, um, which of course, you know, is an even smaller subsection of libertarian party members. Um, that message has a, has a open audience, a willing audience. And so they were, they, they were willing to, to elect me. And, uh, you know, and we'll find out in the chairs race if if they're willing to give me a promotion further and 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 try to carry that forward uh, into the leadership of the party. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic about it. Uh, you know, you never say never, and the vote. You know, nothing matters until the final vote on it. But um, I truly think that there is a large, uh, maybe less active on social media majority that wants the party to help solve problems and ha- and has a shared vision of an America being set free in our lifetime, which means we've got to do a bunch of stuff now. Yeah, so
0: I, I want to ask an uncomfortable question. Um, sure. I, I respect Nick work and I've known him a long time. And I think that if, uh, I think if when we look back at his chairmanship, he's been the most successful chair in my time in the party. And I think, for instance, the office is in, in great shape. And the party, by and large, is in good shape. You have a congressman. Yeah, when there's the Libertarian congressman. I think we're on the verge if Amash gets elected. This is my opinion, not Joe's. If Amash gets selected as the nominee, I think it will be, you know, he announces and he's on the Sunday shows this week. That's not going to stop. It's going to continue. I think it'll be a very successful year. And I'm, I'm sure that he was instrumental in making Amash comfortable with his the decisions that he's made um, in terms of, you know, Here's 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 the roadmap. Here's the support that you'd have from local and states, and here's the picture. Right. Um, my main criticism of Nick is his online behavior. I think picking the fight a couple years ago, I was very vocal about. He shouldn't pick fights with people like Tom Woods because I'm. I look at it and I go, why pick a fight with people in the libertarian media? There's when I started this show there were like two other libertarian podcasts and it was libertarian solution, a radio show down in Arizona. And uh, I don't even remember the other and me. And now we have, a a, yeah, there's quite a (laughs) few. There's a blossoming ecosphere of this. And he has, he he's fearless, but sometimes it's (laughs) ill-advised to, to be snark work as he's affectionately called. (laughs) I did not heard that. Um, Yeah. Uh, and he and I have had our back and forth, but I do have respect for him. I think that he is he is well-intended. And and the rumors of the CIA and all that stuff is just so overblown. How do you intend to use social media? I mean, I would just say that that is my big drawback is that he made unnecessary enemies and and relished a little bit in that too much. And, and I'm sure that that's going to be a lot of our listeners who are going to be delegates. They're going to want to know, like, hey, is this going to be the end of that? Or how are you going to handle social media and, and move forward with promoting the party?
1: Yeah, no, it's a, certainly a fair question. Um, I am not a pick fights on social media guy. Um, and, uh, you know, so if, if you if, I've got a personal Facebook page. And then I've got a campaign or kind of at large member and now a campaign Facebook page. And on both of them, I'm laying out what I see as the facts Um, and sometimes photos of my dog and my husband. (laughs) um, So, you know, today's May 4th uh, when we're recording this. And so it's the 50th anniversary of the Kent state shooting. So on my personal page, I I wrote up a little just summary of um, what happened at Kent state for people that might not be familiar with it. And um, You know, I'm not attacking anybody on it, except maybe President Nixon Um, (laughs) and uh, just just sharing, you know, a little bit of history uh, that's part of our legacy and something that we should never really forget. Uh, And then on my personal page or on my camp, my campaign and and at large member page, uh, you know, we had a really controversial vote on the national committee on Saturday. So I I posted something of the what the vote was who voted what way. And then as the first comment, um, I posted why I voted the way I did. And I've done that consistently throughout my at large term. So, you know, I can't promise people aren't ever going to, I can't promise everyone's always going to agree with everything that I would do as chair. Um, that's impossible. Um, but, uh, I can promise that I'm going to be as transparent as possible about why I'm doing what I'm doing and, I'm gonna be explain about explain about it, and if you disagree with me, I'm gonna be respectful in in talking about it because um, I do think we have a respect deficiency, uh, kind of, uh, and it's not everybody, but it's a lot of people because uh, there's a lot of libertarians who get burned out in the Libertarian Party, and it's partly over commitment. and it's partly uh, our welcoming committee is not as welcoming as it could be, and uh, I'd like to change that, and you know I can't bang a gavel and change it. I can't decree anything and change it. All I can really do is set a good example on it. And that includes social media presence. And, you know, I joined the national committee. There were all sorts of factions on the national committee. And, uh, you know, we were just coming off the term where we had Arvin Vora and, uh, and all that stuff that was before me. Um, but, but I joined. And so there was still a bit of a legacy of, of the tension from that. And, uh, and honestly, it took us six months of of talking past each other. We didn't really have a good um, kind of icebreaker, get to know you thing. We just kind of got thrown into it. And everybody, uh, you know, everybody communicates in a different way. Everybody has different priorities or, you know, we may all ha- share the same goals, but we have different emphasis within them. And we didn't really, we kind of had to feel that out with each other. Um, since then, I think we've been a much more constructive national committee. You know, we disagree on stuff. We have close votes. We 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 battle on things, but we're able to talk on it and 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 you know leave the the fights at, at the table. Um, and I think that's a lot of the a, a lot of what's required. And um, I've tried to be part of that. I've tried to um, draw out um, points of compromise. Draw out um, you know instead of focusing on motivations or intentions, talking about uh, what our goals are and what outcomes would be, what concerns would be. And uh, so I, I've at least tried to contribute to that. And I've gotten quite a few endorsements in this race from uh, members of the national committee, more than either of my opponents and I, and, and across factions. So, you know, I'm a pragmatist, but I've got a lot of radicals supporting me. I've got a lot of people in other groups supporting me um, in part because I, you know, I think they understand that, that I want to be fair And that I want to build something up, not break it down.
0: Yeah, and that's one of uh, my—that's one thing I've noticed is that the LNC, the little bit I've paid attention, this LNC specifically has been fairly good. I mean, I've seen some battles. I mean, the Wayne Allen Root days, for instance, or the—you know—just some of the some of those early 2010 days were. Brutal, uh, and and the, this seems to be a, an LNC of people who get along. And it, while there are factions, they feel, yeah, there's people feel heard, and they're you know I don't know like the the convention being moved and dealing with the pandemic stuff is kind of the first little argument that I've seen pop up, and it doesn't seem to me to be handled in the way the toxic way that it was in LNC's past. So you know, to whomever is responsible for that, I'm sure you are part of it. The, the chairman's part of it. Thank it's you. It's a team effort. Yeah. yeah. It's a team effort, you know, and and just getting along. I think that personal level, like I look back and I think, you know, man, at the time I didn't I, I thought Lee Wrights was this way, but as time goes on, you you learn to go, I really respected Lee Wrights. I respect him now. Uh, I respect George Phillies. You know, some of these yeah. people in at the time when you're in the middle of it, you don't don't have as much appreciation for as you should i mean Uh, i got a
1: story on that um which i which i tell too much now uh but uh i haven't told you yet so um what you're talking about go ahead yeah yeah the um so at our first budget meeting of the term we were presented a deficit budget negative six figures and um we already you know we just come off of a deficit budget the year before we had no no money in the bank we had a hundred thousand dollars of unpaid bills um, we we just couldn't do a deficit budget. And at the first day of the LNC meeting, we just kind of spun our wheels and didn't really come up with any solutions. And, you know, I'm a, at this time, at the time, I'm a freshman on the national committee. This is my first budget meeting. And so I kept waiting for somebody to, you know, we got a lot of reelected incumbents there uh, to step up and say, you know, we can't do this. Here's the solution. And just the first, so by the end of the first day of the two day meeting, we hadn't, gotten it we hadn't made any progress and uh i ended up hanging out with richard longstreth who's the representative for region one which is like the western states and uh he's radical i'm a pragmatist in votes up until that point i don't think we had ever voted together on anything Um, we really have different conceptions of uh where the party should be going and and kind of the end state of libertarianism and all that um and you know you name the issue i don't think we agreed on it but we both want the budget to be balanced and you know he's an accountant by trade i'm a lawyer who's got a lot of nonprofit management experience and uh, and we were just griping together about it and you know kind of together we both said let's let's come up with an alternative and you know let's let's just make it a real alternative cuz you know, I don't want to vote again. You know, I, I remember saying I don't want to vote against this without at least trying to put something better together. And so we stayed up very, very late into the night, going through every line item in the budget, draining all the slush funds, finding all the hidden stuff, um, haircutting everything, but making sure all the essential stuff kept going. And uh, and then the next morning we were going to present it. I think we honest, I I honestly thought it would fail two to 15. They pass it, but Hey, at least we would have tried. Um, It took all day, but it ended up getting adopted. And that's how the LNC balanced its budget. And uh, you know, so I, I, so I think there's, you know, there's, there's a hunger for uh, solutions uh, even in that context. And I mean, Richard and I, we still don't really agree on a lot of stuff, but He's my first phone call on a lot of things. And, um, you know, because, you know, I'm able to talk to my people and Richard's able to talk to his people. And and, you know, you get the two of us together and and you're you're often halfway home on something. Um, and, you know, I've got to give a little and he's got to give a little on on coming up with solutions, but they're better for the party. And um, so, you know, that that's just one example. I could give a lot more, but um, that's the kind of stuff that's been going on on the LNC this term.
0: Yeah, people tend to think you know. Back when I was more involved, I was part of the cabal, and and people, right. you know, libertarian elitist. I'm like, do you have any idea how easy it is to be a libertarian elitist? You just show up, and if you show up for like two years straight, you're in the elite <laughs> club. Like you're, it, it's not it's not a a big pool, which is why I think some of those arguments feel a little more sharp.
1: I mean, I've got a good professional career. I'm not doing this for the power. I'm not doing this for the notoriety. Um, I got plenty of that. Um, I'm suing the IRS. I already, I already am in, uh, I already have a microscope on me in a lot of ways. So, uh, yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about that decision. Uh, (laughs) I don't know anything about that, but that sounds, uh, what are you doing? What happened? Why are you suing the IRS?
1: Uh, Okay. So my day job is I battle state tax policy. So I go all over the country fighting bad tax policy. I built up a team at a nonprofit organization that I worked with worked at for about ten years, um, and by the end of my tenure there, we were knocking down about two billion dollars a year in uh, state taxes. So not bad work, and uh, uh, you know it carries over into some federal stuff. Um, so the Institute for Justice, which is a libertarian public interest law firm here in in the DC area. Uh, they, one of their core issues is licensing. So dumb laws that require people to get licenses for stuff that, you know, you don't, you you don't really need a license for. So the IRS passed this regulation that said, if you want to prepare tax returns for money, you have to get a license from the IRS and pay this excessive fee. Um, and you know, there's, it's, it's dumb. Um, I'm a, because I'm a lawyer, I'm actually exempt from the license. So, I mean, anybody who thinks this is about like qualifications or knowledge of the tax law, or, I mean, it's nonsense. It isn't, it's, not, it's just a, a money-making scheme from the IRA.
0: Well, not just money-making, but we've also seen in the shutdowns why business registration matters. If they don't register your business, then what, what else do they have to hold over your head if they want to yeah. enact shutdowns, for instance? It's about yeah.
1: power too. So IJ got that struck down. Um, that licensing thing was thrown out um so you know good job they did a, they did amazing work i helped do a, a expert testimony in that case and it was it was great that they did that um so the irs comes back and says all right we're not going to license but we're going to still keep collecting the fee um so if you're a paid tax prepar- preparer you still have to register and pay this annual fee so uh, a libertarian lawyer thought that was dumb and so he's filed a lawsuit um against the irs on it he got some two accountants and then me um, I can give a lot of, re- I can give a long explanation about why I'm involved, but I'm involved. <laughs> and, uh, so the three of us are the class representatives for the class of everyone who's paid this fee to the IRS. So we're suing the IRS o- over it. Um, we did very well in trial court. The government appealed to the DC circuit, um, to, uh, Merrick Garland, who, uh, ruled partly in favor of the IRS and partly in favor of us, um, upheld the fee, but, Highly suggested it is excessive and sent it back to the trial court to figure out how excessive it is. So that's kind of where we're at in it. But in at the end of the day, I think it's going to end up being about 160 million dollars refunded that the IRS doesn't want to pay back. Um, So you know, I often get asked, you know, do you think taxation is theft? It's like I'm getting, I'm trying to get the money back. (laughs) So uh, of course, oh,
0: you don't want to pay your 160 million? Sorry, (laughs) sorry. I'll we'll treat
1: you like you treat us. You get yeah pay it or else um well that's really I, cool so i get extra extra special attention every uh oh,
0: i'm sure yes um, you you i can't imagine like it, the how careful you are
1: i i mean it goes with the job it goes with the territory
0: but you know what? You're probably not all. And Joe Hauptman has this great line where he says libertarians fight for a life that's far more interesting than the ones they lead. <laughs> and I'm sure that you're all not that interesting or controversial when it comes to sitting down and filing your taxes. We uh, I mean, we only have one life. Let's let's have some fun with that. That's right. Yeah. Um so let's talk about some books, or if somebody's a newer libertarian, what are some books or movies? <laughs> or yeah, I, I've, I, you know, I'm one of those people. I'll expand your screen. I was looking for <laughs> a bookshelf. You know, I see, you know, Team of Rivals, John Adams, yeah. Alexander Hamilton. You know, The Rise of the Third Reich, The Last Lion series, all kinds of great books on that
1: back bookshelf there. Yeah. Um, what, yep. the law stuff on the other other wall over there. Um, but
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, I prefer history. So that's, it's, it's a nice bookshelf that, yeah. that you can see on the video on our YouTube channel. Um, what are some books in your formation books, movies, audiobooks, magazines, what are some intellectual influences that you could recommend to people that were very important to you and your development?
1: Sure. Uh, well, we talked about why government doesn't work. That'd still be kind of in my top 10 list. Um, I've got a lot of books on political transitions. It's something that really fascinated me when I was getting my degree in college, um, moving from one form of government to another, um, which was happening quite a lot in the 1980s and 1990s. So when I was in college in the late 90s, there were a lot of new papers and books that had just come out on it. So, you know, Brazil moving from a military dictatorship to democracy and kind of how they did that, or Eastern Europe. Uh, poll and choosing between shock therapy versus gradualism and what were the pros and cons of those approaches. Uh, so that kind of stuff really fascinates me. I think it's relevant because uh, in a way libertarians are advocating for transitions of one type of system to another type of system. And uh, a lot of the kind of philosophical debates we have in libertarianism is really, you know, how fast, how slow, how do we do that transition? So I, I found it really good of informing stuff. Um I've got quite a few books on healthcare policy. Um, my mom was a nurse growing up. My dad worked at telecommunications in a hospital for forty years. So did my uncle. I mean, I'm I'm like the first in my family to not be in the medical industry. Um, but you know, I still have a big interest in it, and it's it's kind of this overarching giant problem that um, nobody really has uh, offered good solutions for. I mean, the Republicans came in in 2016. Basically, it all teed up for them to pass something on healthcare, and they were incapable of doing it because they don't really have any idea what they want to do. Democrats have ideas what they want to do, but it's just you know spend a bunch of money and and make everything worse. Um, so you know, I, I do read a lot on that. I I got a lot of legal books. Um, let's see. Uh, let me look around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got some uh, religious stuff. It's it's a lot of this transition stuff. Uh, I've got basically every biography of President Eisenhower. Um, and it's really fascinating reading those because the treatment of him by historians changed dramatically over the years. Really? Um, shortly after he left office, his perception of him was that uh, he was just this do-nothing president that played golf all the time and, and didn't really do anything. And since his papers have come out and since other biographies have come out, um, it shows how untrue that really was. I mean, he was, I mean, he used to be a general. He was the Supreme Allied Commander. I mean, he, he wasn't sitting around doing nothing. He was very much working every day to make things happen, but he understood how you got things done, which is by working through other people, by creating incentives, by creating the structures for people to succeed. Um, the Eisenhower grid comes from him, which is this management technique where you you sort out what's urgent and important from each other to help you decide what to focus on and what you need to schedule and what you need to delegate and everything. Um, And uh, I mean, frankly, he was teed up with so many opportunities to send in American troops that he passed on. Um, I mean, he did a few times, but uh, in the, for the most part, he passed on it or he did it as this superficial gesture just to say that he did it. And then he pulled the troops out very quickly. So like in Lebanon, he sent in troops in 1958 in Lebanon to basically sit on the beach for a month or two. And then he pulled them out. But it was a big, it was just basically a big gesture. But that was in opposition to the military brass, which wanted a much more full scale involvement. And, you know, the same thing happened in Vietnam, where he resisted pressure to go bail out the French and send in American troops. Um, And he diffused a lot of international crises during his tenure, Um, lessons, unfortunately, that President Kennedy didn't really learn until it was too late and, you know, causing the Berlin standoff and the Cuban Missile Crisis and and so forth um, Vietnam. So, <laughs> yeah, in Vietnam. And uh, so, you know, it, it's just kind of been fascinating reading kind of how he operated and what he did. Um, you know, politically, I don't know, you know how much I agree with President Eisenhower, but uh, in terms of I mean, him, he, he may be at least one of our best presidents in keeping us out of war and managing the job and 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 keeping everything moving
0: and and obviously the farewell speech which libertarians often quote that not a lot of you know normal people (laughs) talk about the the industrial military industrial complex speech
1: yeah i mean and just think about like what you were what it would be like hearing that from the first time and this guy who's you know conquered you know beat hitler and um, is, you know the number one general in the country, and he's he chooses his farewell speech to be beware of generals. Don't let them lead public policy. Um, and you know we mostly dis- disregarded his advice. Uh, we still do to this day. Um, so that's why I think it's so, still so timely. And and you know it, the day will come where we we follow his advice on that. Um, I also have a lot of train books and a lot of Dick Tracy comic books. See, I got, you know, got C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, which I basically know by heart. I love that series. Um, and uh, well, and I've written a few boring books on uh, tax policy in certain states, which uh, are real page turners. <laughs> An author as well, very good. Yeah, it is interesting to
0: study history through the lens of like a single person, or and that's why I love biographies because you do. Especially biographies now, they take you know the the Chernows, the you know the Ambroses, the McCullough's, They they try to include social history as much as they do just the biography of the person. So you get a, a better understanding of kind of politics at the time. You know Robert Caro's my president that I I've really enjoyed reading about was LBJ and Robert Caro's series on him, which. You know what an awful human being. You don't walk away with the same respect for for him that you do with Eisenhower if you read those books. But yeah. studying history through the lens of a single person, you know Taylor Branch's MLK biographies and the and the study of the the civil rights movement, it just gives you such a better appreciation. And then if you attack it from multiple authors, H.L. Mencken is one of my favorite people to ever live, and I've read several biographies on him, and you just get a different shade of a person based on what that person chooses to cover, which I always find to be fascinating, like what catches the attention of the biographer about that person too.
1: Um, So I have an LBJ story for you, which I know you haven't heard yet. Um, Mm. Alan Boyd, who was LBJ's transportation secretary, is still alive. He's really old, but he's still alive. And he just wrote a biography and includes some of stories with LBJ, which as far as I know, have never been talked about before. And one of them is... uh, Uh, so, uh, Mrs. Johnson really cared about highway beautification. It was a big priority of hers. And so LBJ called up Alan Boyd and said, I want highway beautification put in the next transportation bill. And Boyd was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll try, sir. But the, you know, the appropriating senators don't give a, don't give a crap about that issue. Um, but you know, I'll give it a shot. And, uh, so president Johnson said, well, why don't you when you talk to Senator so and so? And I don't have the book in front of me. I can give actual names; they're in the book. <laughs> um, like, when right. you talk to, when you talk to Senator so and so, be sure to mention this. And Boyd doesn't reveal what he was told, but he you know it's it's some kind of code phrase or something, right? Like- so so Boyd goes over to the senator and says, you know, Mrs. Johnson and President Johnson really want highway beautification in the next bill. And the senator's like, I, you know, I just don't see that as a priority. It's like, well, the president wanted me to mention blank. And he said, the color drained from the Senator's face. And, and then, and he just walked out of the room. And then um, in Boyd's telling, he's in the gallery when the Senate's debating it, uh, the bill, and the Senator comes out and he says, I need to amend the bill to add language on highway beautification. And, and, you know, does anyone object? And no one objected. And he, and he put it in. And he said, the Senator looked up at Boyd in the gallery with, Pure hatred, on his <laughs> and he said the senator never talked to him again for the rest of his life. I don't buy to so, blame him. And then the next scene is is the signing ceremony for the for the highway beautification bill. Um, so that's how we got highway beautification. Um, just another LBJ story there. Yeah, really a truly terrible human being, um, not just in. The policies, uh, you know, Vietnam and 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 the expansion of government, but also just uh, just an awful human being to everyone around them, including his own family.
0: And and it's just a great study in just following orders. I mean, that's you watch One Child Nation on I think it's Amazon Prime, and or you read about the development of Nazi Germany, or you read about LBJ and his cabinet. It's like people people absolve themselves of participating in that. I mean, that's a very small little evil. You know, like that's just, you know that that guy wasn't killing anybody, but there's a reason that that man now hates him, and yeah. Boyd, Boyd is absolved himself of of it just because he, you know, LBJ told him what to do, and and it's it's fascinating what people will will just kind of walk away from. Yeah. Um. Well, let's uh, let me give you, you know, a few minutes, just a pitch yourself and shameless promotion time. So if, if people are going to the convention, if they're one of the 1000 and some delegates that are going to participate at this point online or in person, who knows um, why, why should, let me phrase it this way. Okay. I've been very critical of the libertarian party. I work, I worked for the party for the libertarian party of Indiana for four years, full time. I devoted a lot of time and money and effort to it. Um, and over the last two to three years, I've become fairly disillusioned with the party, the the just the emotional strength that it's that it takes to stay in the party sometimes, yeah. combined with the returns that I see, you know, as I go around and talk to local establishment figures. Most of them kind of don't have an awareness of who I am, you know, they don't have an awareness of what the party does or how it operates. You know, why should why should I come back to the Libertarian Party or why should somebody be involved in the Libertarian Party? And why are you the best guy to make that happen?
1: All right. I love that question. Um, The there's a lot of organizations in the Libertarian movement and a lot of people and a lot of entities doing a lot of great work. And I've worked with a lot of them, Um, you know, educational organizations, student outreach organizations. Uh, professional organizations, uh, on-the-ground activist organizations, there's only one organization focused on electing libertarians to public office, and that's the Libertarian Party. So it's kind of incomplete if you're a libertarian supportive of all of those efforts, but not the one that gets the libertarian at the legislative negotiating table. And, you know, I don't begrudge anybody for not being involved to date. Most libertarians aren't involved in the Libertarian Party to date, because we haven't proven concept of success. Uh, we're 49 years old, but seemingly still in startup mode. And and we got to change that. So let me talk about some of the things that I want to see, and some of which we're already working on to change that. Um, one of them is Libertarian Frontier Project. Out in the Mountain West, uh, one of our contractors did a lot of deep research, kind of on his own time, to figure out districts where We've got a fat and happy incumbent who, uh, you know, from, from usually Republican um, who, you know, is disconnected from their district. It's a small population district and uh, wouldn't require a lot of media. Wouldn't require a lot of money to kind of dominate uh, and run a competitive campaign. So we identified a bunch of those districts. we found good libertarians who are active in their communities, uh, you know, successful, know a lot of people and we're running them for those legislative seats. And so the, the precise number changes, uh, every bit, but you know, we've got, uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 of them that we're running. Um, and these, these will be competitive races. So each of these candidates is responsible for their own campaign operation, raising the money for it. The national party is putting in infrastructure help, phone banking help from all over the country, door knocking help from all over the country, messaging, strategic help, training, um, so in this year's budget, uh, we worked to find a hundred thousand dollars to get into the budget for it. And then I hit the phones with some other people and found another hundred thousand dollars to supplement it. And then plus what the money is on the ground. So this is not a shoestring effort. Um, maybe by, you know, national campaign standards, it's a shoestring effort, but as far as focusing efforts on a couple of, uh, winnable races, it's, it's really important. Um, I don't know how successful we're going to be with it. I think we're going to elect some people in November. And even of the ones we don't elect, we're going to get a lot of valuable lessons that we can apply next time. So for instance, last time in 2018, we almost elected Bethany Baldus as a state representative in Wyoming. And she was kind of a proto uh, type of this new approach of a lot more uh, on the ground, using data, door knocking, messaging focused effort. And uh, she actually won on election day, but she lost with absentees. And what we realized too late is that uh, half of Wyoming leaves Wyoming at the end of summer. Mm. Uh, so if you start door knocking after that, you miss those voters. So we're fixing that this time. And, you know, we're having to recreate things on the fly right now because of coronavirus. But uh, we've learned that lesson and we're applying the lessons from it. So, you know, we're going to elect some people. We've got a congressman now. Um, I, I hope... You know, whoever our presidential nominee is does well. i have to stay neutral on it until we pick them because I got to work with whoever the nominee is. Um, but I think we're on an upswing right now and we're going to be able to shed this, you know, ineffective loser image that I think we've unfairly earned in the Libertarian Party. And I hope when we're able to do that, success breeds success and you know, people want to invest in something that's winning. People want to invest in something that's succeeding. And, uh, you know, you, you don't really need to go much further than Jeff Hewitt, who's uh, a libertarian supervisor on a county board in California, one of five. And so it's it's three Republicans, one Democrat, and Jeff. Right. And he gets along well with the Democrat. You know, libertarians are really good at at building bridges with the other parties. We understand the left in a way the right never will. And we understand the uh, right in a way the left never will. So we, we're we kind of natural uh, coalition builders. And when Jeff can get on board with the, the Democrat, they just need one more. And whatever they do is law. And uh, we can have that kind of dynamic all over the place if we play our cards right. You know, it's going to be a long time before I think we can uh, elect a majority of the Senate or a majority of Congress or, you know, well, i'm I mean, I never say never in politics. I feel like I've lived a lifetime in politics in the last ten years. Wow. But uh, I think we're we're on the verge of being able to change a lot of things. And you know, anybody who finds this appealing, anybody who wants libertarians at the policymaking table, anybody who wants to celebrate libertarian victories on election night, um, I mean, we need you now because um, uh, you know we need reinforcements of people who share that vision. And you want to make it happen. And I, I think we're making a lot of progress on it. And, you know, we'll see how the uh, how the rest of 2020 goes. But uh, that's what I'm committed to. That's why I'm in, involved. I don't have any free time. Uh, this is a nights and weekends thing for me, really. Uh, I've got a, a very time consuming and stressful job, but I'm able to to make all of this work because it's important for me. I don't want, uh, you know, whenever my life ends for the country to be in the same situation than it is now or worse uh, and if it is, it's not going to, I don't want it to be for lack of trying.
0: How stressful does somebody's job have to be for LP chair to be a vacation?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do I'm do. i a lawyer's lawyer, so oh I'm, who lo- I'm who lawyers call when they have a crisis that they cannot figure out. So okay. every time my phone rings, it's crisis management.
0: Yeah, I think the, you know, it was so frustrating 10 years ago as Campaign for Liberty was in full swing and the Ron Paul campaigns were kind of, you know, transitioning. And the Amash experiment of we're going to change it from the inside, really, it kind of shows that's just not how it's going to work. He was elected as a Republican, but it's hard to change it from the inside because you never know what factors are going to come along. And the seduction, I think he's going to have a problem answering for some of the, you know, the... Massey, Amash, and Rand, which is why it's so funny to hear Amashism principled, because those guys were kind of the heirs to the Ron Paul movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you see in their three cases, the the compromises that had to be made, and that's part of being in politics. It's just, if you're going to be in politics, you're going to make compromises, because just like you were talking about earlier, you've got to have you know, I've got to call Longstreth, and we've got to negotiate these things. You know, it's just how it is. But it, it really does seem with having a libertarian congressman and having Amash come over and having, you know, just the candidates that we're going to run against. It does seem like the Libertarian Party is heading in a positive direction. So I wish you all the best.
1: Well, and I want to earn back your membership and all of your listeners, too, not by just, you know, coming on and begging you but by making a party that you will be proud to be a member of. Can I borrow $25? <laughs> um, and
0: in uh, full disclosure, and thank you to Ethan Bishop Henchman, who is a patron of We Are Libertarians. So thank you. I I would I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to the great Ethan.
1: Yeah. It's my uh, husband, if anybody's confused. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. Thank
0: you so much. Uh, again, it is winwithjoe.org if you want to learn more about uh, all the stuff that Joe is up to. Joe, thank you so much for your time. Anytime, Chris. Thank you to everybody listening to We Are Libertarians, and we will talk to you again next time.